Welcome to Drinks with Defenders. I'm Addie B. Plate. And I'm Kayla Murphy. We're two law school friends turned criminal defense attorneys turned podcast hosts. We're here in this space because we now work in separate offices and miss collaborating with each other. We've been talking about creating a podcast for years where we talk about the complexities of the criminal justice system, the aspects of it that we grapple with, and the importance of what we do. At the end of a long work week, we want to sit down, have a drink with each other, and talk about the rabbit holes of criminal defense, just like we always have. So let's get into it. Cheers. Welcome to Drinks with Defenders. If you're new here, my name is Kayla Murphy, and my co-host is Addie B. Plate. We are two full-time criminal defense attorneys located in the U.S. This is our podcast where we talk about topics pertaining to the U.S. legal system. A little housekeeping before we jump in. We have some new patrons of the podcast this week, my friends Shane and Jillian. Um, I know Shane from my time working up in northern Idaho. He's a good friend of mine. And my friend Jillian, I actually met while I was in law school. So if any of our listeners are still in the Eugene area, um, she's an esthetician. Check out her business, Face Forward Aesthetics. This is not a paid advertisement, and she did not support this podcast for me to give her a plug. This is just me saying that is how I met her. She was my esthetician through law school. She's a fantastic person, and she's really good at her job. And because she's supporting this podcast and supported me as a friend, as somebody that I saw in law in law school, this is me supporting her business. So give it up for them. I really appreciate their support and love um, as we launched our first episode. So thank you guys. And we'll share more information about our Patreon with the rest of you in just a few moments. Also, we're on all of the socials, Instagram, Facebook, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Audible, YouTube, iHeartRadio, Deezer, Podbean, and even Samsung. I know that was an exhaustive list, but you can find us there. So keep an eye out on your favorite social media to see what we're doing and find out what's going on with the podcast. Aside from that, the best way to get a hold of us is at our email address, which is drinkswithdefenders at gmail.com. Addie. What's up, girl? What's up? (laughs) You tell me. Like, we got here tonight. We're here. I know. And I think that for all of us, for the whole team, like that's a feat. Like is Mercury in retrograde or something? Like, Honestly, it might be. It feels like it is. I I feel like we do this thing. We should be honest with our listeners. Sometimes I call you before we get on the podcast to just kind of like try to have a little bit of peace with just my friend before we talk about our jobs. And so I called you tonight before we hopped on this and I was like, dude (laughs) and you were on the other end of the phone and you were like dude and you didn't even want to talk you just wanted to listen to your pod or tiktok i think you were wanting to just yeah yeah mm -hmm. calm down with tiktok which is super fair and i was like shit okay so i (laughs) i i took i took a bubble bath i poured myself oh my god i took like a 10 minute bubble bath it was short and sweet but it was enough to kind of decompress I think we're I think we're pretty honest on here about sometimes we have bad days in court. Today was one of those days for me. I, I covered a case for someone in my office and it just felt like 
three months in one court hearing. <laughs> and so mm. um, that was the day. I think that, you know, that happens sometimes. I also have a few cases that just seem to be sucking the life out of me. And that's just an yeah. honest take on this job. So I guess that's what's going on in the working world. What's what's up with you? Well, so about the hearing, did you think it would be like a 30 second situation and it turned into like a half an hour long, like courtroom drama? What happened? It was so much worse than that. I thought it was going to be just like <laughs> we go up to council table. We are entering denials. We're setting it out for evidentiary. Boom, boom, done. And that is not what happened. It turned into this whole other issue regarding bond, custody, all sorts of stuff. And I was just like, how did we get here? And of course, it had to get pushed to the end of the docket to keep result, like Ugh, continuing with what God. we were doing because it just was this evolving thing. And the outcome of it was not at all on anyone's radar. Also, um, there was just some procedurally weird things. And the, the assigned attorney happened to be also in the same courthouse, but she was in a different courtroom. And so I went and plucked her from the courtroom she was in to just be like, dude, this is your case. What do you want me to do? And so that's the reality of being a public defender. It's a lot of just on your feet scrambling and, and things that you're not really prepared for. I feel like if you want to be a good PD, you really need to have at least some background in improv. Like, I don't know, just seeming not awkward and, and going with it. So how about you? Yeah, man. Number one, I totally agree. You've got to be good at thinking on your feet because it's like sometimes your client, you know, shows right. up or doesn't, doesn't show up, show up. Or whatever, right? It's like you have to just poker face and just and and also like, I don't know if this happens in Washington, but we're not really obligated to give information about our clients like not appearing, right? And they, of course, ask. And so you're kind of like having to just say, I don't have any information to give to the court at this time. Um, and so that's always fun too. That's not what yeah. happens today, but that happens a lot. Um, so, but, you know, honestly, yeah. I was thinking, and I, I don't want to cut you off from your, your catch up, but I had two questions when I was in the car driving to and from court today that I wanted to ask you. And they're related to cases that I'm facing right now. And I was like, you know what? I've never had the experience of just asking Kayla on this podcast for some senior attorney advice in terms of like my own experience. Senior, so LOL. I, you're senior to me. And, so, and so I wanted to just ask you just questions. I mean, they're not really advice, just like questions about your experience with two things that I have found particularly challenging in the last couple of weeks. The first being, say you're negotiating with a prosecutor and the prosecutor tells you no the first time. And then you have to, you know, your client isn't wanting to go with the prosecutor's recommendations. You reached out to them. They said no. You go back to your client with that information and your client's like, no, you got to go back to that prosecutor and tell them what's up and argue and advocate for me. What is your strategy with that? Because for me, I find myself being like, okay, I'm going to go back through discovery and try to find something to point out to this prosecutor. Or as was this recent case, I was like, no, I'm going to tell this prosecutor that we're going to watch the video together. And that way they're going to be sitting next to me and I can point out the things that I want to point out. And I felt like maybe that was a bold move. And I wasn't sure if you have ever just straight up told a prosecutor, like, I don't think you're seeing what I'm seeing. Let's watch this together. So 
what's your strategy with something like that? Because I felt very uncomfortable, but I didn't know what else to do. That's very creative. And, you know, being a good defense attorney is about creativity. And so I like it. I like your spunk. Oh, my gosh. Um, No, I, I like it. Yeah, dude, it's it's tricky. I mean, I guess generally speaking, I will like look through the case and try to find any potential issues that I put in my quote unquote, like negotiations basket, right? Any right. like good facts for us, any like potential like three, six issues, like uh, search and seizure, right? Or three, five issues, like Miranda problems. Anything suppression or like, For sure. And I'll talk to my client, figure out what their goals are and what, you know, realistic, but also like positive resolution would look like that we think we could try to negotiate. And then I email the prosecutor usually and I'm like, hey, what's up? Here are some issues, uh, some potential motion issues, like give us X, Y, and Z. And in exchange, you'll get, you know, potentially a speedy resolution to the case. And you won't have to spend a bunch of time responding to my emotion and litigating all these issues. And we all win, right? We've resolved the case. It's fair resolution. My client's happy. You're happy. We can all go home. As far as when the prosecutor tells you no, you know, I mean, you you do have like tools in your toolbox, right? Like you right. could file a motion, you could make them work, you could set the case for trial. Right. And sometimes they just don't take you seriously. And maybe you need to actually write the motion and then attach it to an email and be like, what up, dude, I'm about to file this. Do you want to play ball? Or do you want to like drag this out and work an extra, uh, you know, four hours this week responding to this and appearing and arguing at the hearing? And having to get your officer witness prepared, et cetera, et cetera. Like the prosecutor has like additional obligations that they have to worry about. Right. So, you know, I mean, it is their burden. Any good criminal defense attorney, as soon as you get a case, you are trying to figure out if it's a good trial case, first and foremost. And then, you know, you don't get to make the determination of going to trial. That's your client's choice. But you're kind of thinking about, okay, what's good about my case? What's bad about my case? Those type of things. In this particular case, I felt like, you know, it wasn't a terrible trial case. It's not a great trial case, but it was more just like, give us an offer that's more reasonable because my client is wanting to resolve. I feel like it was a little bit of an overcharge. I mean, sure, if you want to go for that charge, I mean, we would have to it in a motion way, but it was just like, give a more reasonable offer. And based on your offer, it just seems like if we were both to watch the video and have just an honest discussion about really something that came down to like 20 seconds, we would be at a place to just kind of come to the negotiating table a little bit more reasonably. And that didn't happen. And I reached out to the prosecutor and just kind of pointed out the strengths to my case, I felt like. And arguments for a reasonable, more reasonable offer. And then I got kind of a no back. And then I was like, okay. And I, I chewed on it and I was like, I don't want to send a condescending email back, but like my client doesn't like this offer. We will request for this to be continued if the offer doesn't get changed and it's just going to be drug out. I think at this point, just the best thing for, it seemed like everybody was to just continue negotiations in a more reasonable way. And so I was like, okay, 
the best thing I can think of is just like us watching the video together so that I can just point out things out because you're also doing like the email back and forth with a prosecutor or, you know, catching them in the courthouse or whatever. And I didn't want to like catch this person by surprise. In exchange for that, you know, my efforts of emailing the prosecutor and asking us to watch the video together, I got a more reasonable offer. So I got what I wanted, but it just felt like, does any, how do other people approach this? So I don't know. I just, I just thought it was strange, but I appreciate your thoughts on it. I just, I found myself in a little bit of an uncomfortable situation. I wasn't sure what other people would do. So, um, or at least outside of my office, right. I I talked to other people in my office about it, but that was the solution I came up with. I mean, I think it also depends on your personal style as an attorney right? and what's authentic to you and also who you're dealing with, mm-hmm. right? Like some prosecutors maybe are like less worried about responding to emotion because that's their strong suit. And so they really don't right. care where others are like, dude, I do not have the time for this shit. And so let's just play ball. Right. You know, right. so just... And then my second question to you, and maybe this is like, I don't want to like poke the bear because it's a little bit of a heavy question, but I was thinking, you know, we sit, we spend, our job is so interesting. You spend a lot of it in the courtroom. They spend a lot of it at your desk, just going through like the case and discovery and body camera footage and dash camera footage and, you know, lab reports, whatever it may be. And I was like thinking about it and I was like, okay. You know, every time I get a new case and I go through discovery, there's different things that I don't enjoy looking at in terms of just like, it's hard. It's a hard part about our job and, or it's just boring to me or I'm having to like teach myself something because I don't have the vocabulary for what I'm looking at. It's, there's different things that are hard about just reviewing discovery. And in, in, in thinking about that, I was like, I wonder what Kayla's position is on what is the thing that is hardest for you when you come across in in a discovery? Like, is it something that you just don't understand what it is? Is it something that just shocks you in body camera footage? And maybe that's a loaded question. But for me, I was thinking about like, and I think it relates to tonight's topic a little bit, but anytime I get body camera footage and I feel like law enforcement is using really... I don't know what the right word is, but tricky questioning where it feels like they just get to lie to our clients to get our clients. Well, they do. And they can. Well, we know that. Yes. And so, but it just evokes this like visceral response where I just feel so bad because I think sometimes, you know, our clients as defendants are painted in this light of being like dishonest people who like break the law or whatever. And then to watch a law enforcement officer lie to them to get our clients and to be only them and be honest. sometimes, yes. dude. Yes. I get, hate get that shit be, for no it reason. It makes me so angry. And I was just yes. like, okay. And I've just, I've, and I don't want to like be that person that's like, oh, this happens all the time, but it happens a lot. And so you get to watch yeah. like law enforcement lie so they get your client to admit to something. And usually it's in the form of like, just being honest will help your case. And that when that specific thing is said, I, I, I said, okay, my office is on the third floor of a building. I want to throw my computer out of the window every time I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and so 
I just was wondering, other than that, what is like your pet peeve in, in discovery? Like something that just makes you have a response if there is anything. Well, I completely agree with you. Like there are definitely like a lot of good cops who really care, but the longer you practice in a particular community, the more you see like, this is the cop who's just fucking rude to people for no reason, you know, who like makes assertions and reports that are kind of sketchy. It's like, is that what you saw? Because that's not what the video shows or what the, you know what I mean? It's like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. That that kind of shit really pisses me off. Um, I guess I knew you were going to be on the same page as me, so it's a little validating. But I was just wondering no, if you had that, like that yeah. fucking pisses me off. And but I mean, in a way, it kind of is like, oh, you want to play ball, motherfucker? Let's play ball. And <laughs> then go. I'll like, you know what I mean? Go through it with like even if possible, like more of a fine tooth comb, like trying to find every right. single mistake, every single right. thing I can do to destroy their case, like. You were so confident. You were such a fucking dick. You like for no reason, like you're done. Let's cross, like, let's just cross examine you, baby. Let's go. I hate right? that shit. Like I'll get, yeah, that, that like inspires me. <laughs> like I, I get fueled on rage. <laughs> I am. Well, see, yeah. Okay. I guess we're on the same page. I mean, thank God, because sometimes I'm just sitting there and I'm just like, do other people feel this way? So it's wild. Thank you dude. For, yeah. You're not wrong. It's wild. Um, okay. On that note. So, um, yeah, I don't know. My, my little day, I'll keep it short. Like, yeah, whatever. I just had, I just had like a conflict with a prosecutor and it's just like, I was already just so like on edge because I've been so fucking anxious about these new felony cases. anxious? I know. Angry and so at a like, prosecutor? No I'm like, way. I'm like this close to the edge, dude. And it's like, you're freaking <laughs> pushing me. So, yeah. But I'm coming down now. You okay. know, the, the three siders may have helped. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. I'm happy to be here with you guys. It's fine. It's going to be fine. Yeah, this job can just be intense, dude. You know, it's like, it's just a lot of human suffering. It's a lot of conflict. It's a lot of stress. And it is um, a lot of stress. And wearing other people's on stress. On that note, for what are our, we drinking do, tonight? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, <laughs> um, matters, apparently. <laughs> listen, we clearly like, I wouldn't say we have our shit together per se tonight but the the requirement was at least two drinks because this is our dui episode so the requirement was we don't care what you drink as long as you drink a lot of it i am drinking a spiked coffee because i am a tired girly at the end of the day so i'm one of those people that could drink caffeine and still go to bed at a normal time so I'm drinking an iced coffee. I felt like if I elevated it and put it in a cocktail glass, I would feel a little bit more festive. So I'm drinking coffee that's spiked with Kahlua. Um, I, I love a, a Kahlua moment. So I poured Hell a lot yeah. of Kahlua and a lot of coffee and called it good. What about you, Kayla? What are you drinking? I am drinking a Two Towns Cider House Cosmic Crisp. It is 8% alcohol per can. What flavor is it? Um, It's just the OG. OG, imperial style apple. It's delightful. I'm usually more of a hard seltzer kind of gal, but, you know, today was a day. So it's like, you know what? 
She's here. We need some hot Cheetos. We need some cider. Yeah. D U Y. Why, Addy? Why are there so many DUIs? <laughs> do you have you have a lot of DUIs? I do. They're a big part of misdemeanor practice. I feel like most of my caseload is if I were to break my caseload into just the typical groupings, it's like driving offenses and like misdemeanor drug offenses. So like most of mm-hmm. my cases, every once in a while I have like a battery or something like that, right? But as a new attorney, I have a lot of like driving without privileges, which sometimes are related to a past DUI um, or like somebody's license being suspended. So there's maybe a DUI kind of going on in the background or like a shadow DUI, I guess. And then, or, you know, a DUI and then there's gradations of DUIs, which we should talk about. And then, you know, paraphernalia charges, marijuana charges, that type of stuff. So that's like the biggest, portion of my caseload is probably those two buckets. And DUIs are interesting because there's a lot of moving pieces in terms of they're really fact-specific in terms of like building your case. If you want to take it to trial, what's going on with the person's driving record. Um, If it's a misdemeanor DUI, if it's a first offense, if it's a second offense, if it's an excessive BAC, if you're then into felony territory DUIs, like there's a lot to unpack with understanding DUIs. And then they have this really fun undertone. And I say fun kind of facetiously. They have a fun undertone of like science kind of and like, you know, police standard operating procedures. And then there's like, you know, drug recognition. Oh, and then there's also drug DUIs. So sometimes they're not even like just related to alcohol. And then drug DUIs have a bunch of their own categories too, because it's like, is it a prescription drug? Is it a recreational drug? Is it, you know, what's going on there? Um, And the person you pulled over the person, if it's, you know, a quote unquote drug DUI, did they know that the person was like, did they suspect that the person was under the influence of drugs? Or did they originally think the person was under the influence of alcohol? There's just a lot with DUIs and they're this big spider yeah. web and I feel like they'll never go away. As long as I'm a criminal defense attorney, I will be taking DUI cases to the day I no longer practice or die, I guess, whichever is whichever sooner, but they just are going mean, to stay with me. practice will likely kill you. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, here. I, I feel you. I thought that um, a fun way to kind of structure this conversation and how a yeah. typical DUI investigation and case plays out would be to use a case as an example. So yeah. you looked at the Lindsay Low, one of Lindsay Lohan's DUIs. I, I, so I didn't really, so the fun thing about Lindsay Lohan, and I want to kind of back up in terms of like why we picked Lindsay Lohan and just kind of the angle I wanted to take with it. So the thing, and it's not, because I think we should, after that kind of go through what happens with like a DUI investigation. For sure. But the Lindsay Lohan case is really interesting in terms of, first and foremost, I think when a lot of people think celebrity DUIs, she comes to mind because her DUI case, I think it was from 2007, got extremely drug out. Um, She had like constant arrests, different bail settings. And it just kind of paints this really, 
I think full picture in terms of like how long these cases can go. And then just people like say you resolve your DUI case for whatever reason, you can get like hailed back into court or taken back into custody. Her case is a little bit less um, of the reality in terms of how some of it played out though, because for our clients, you know, if they're brought into custody, they'll actually usually serve more time (laughs) than just like a couple hours. Her case was really interesting because a lot of the times when she got taken back into custody, she was released for over quote unquote overcrowding issues in, I believe, the California jail system, which is kind of crazy when you think about it because most jails have overcrowding issues. And think about the last time a client other than maybe COVID got released for overcrowding. That doesn't really happen in the same way that it would happen for like a celebrity. So I think it maybe points to a little bit of I don't want to say necessarily privilege, but privilege and um, financial resources and all of these things I think kind of played out in her outcome. So I found this fun little article from E! News, of course, and it talks about kind of the timeline of what happened to her case. And I just wanted to point out some of the highlights in terms of what's common and what we see. Can I pause you for a sec, Addie? Yeah, of course you can. I was thinking that this might be a good way to kind of like illustrate how each of the steps of a DUI investigation, prosecution, and resolution kind of play out. So yeah. maybe we could go in order of just like what happened. Like, does the article talk about why she was stopped? Kind of. So the it starts with... In May of 2007, she was charged with a DUI offense and possession of cocaine after losing control of her Mercedes. And they said in a booze-fueled car wreck in Beverly Hills. So I believe there was an accident. So that was (laughs) kind of the start of it. So it wasn't like they were investigating for some of the other things you see, such as like driving pattern or anything like that. But so there was an accident. Sometimes that happens. And then, you know... The person who's involved in the accident, they have to make a determination if they think that substances were involved. And that seemed to be kind of what happened with her case. Yeah. I mean, so Adi, I I would love to get your take. But when I do a DUI review, I try to be systematic about it. And the more that I learn about DUIs, the more things I learn that I need to check. Mm -hmm. And For that reason, at first, I really hated DUIs. I felt like they were just really complex. And I actually had a felony attorney tell me once, and he's been practicing for a long time, that um, when I was like really scared of felonies, he was saying, dude, like if you've handled DUIs, like those are probably straight up like one of the most complex cases you can handle, like in district court or superior court. Um, District court is where misdemeanors and gross misdemeanors are. Uh, Superior court is where felony cases would be heard. So yeah, he was basically saying like they're the most tricky. And yeah, there's a lot to check. But like once you know what to check, it can kind of be a little bit fun. I kind of think of it as like, I feel like a teacher, like grading. You know what I mean? Like, did you do this? Did you do this? No, you didn't. You fucking didn't. And it's like, I'm a teacher that like gets a kick out of like you failing. Like you as the officer giving me things to negotiate with and get my client a better deal, you know? Right. So typically when I'm reading a report for a DUI, the first thing I do is I look at like, okay, why did the cop initiate contact? Right. So for example, if, um, you know, you didn't turn your turning signal on 50 feet prior to the turn, you know, is that why they stopped you? Or did you, 
you know, were you driving erratically or like Lindsay, was it like more of a community caretaking thing where there was an accident and that's why there was police contact? So yeah, sounds legit. Uh, Okay. So then what happens? Does it talk at all about like the cops observations or um, if she did like field sobriety tests? So I found a different article, and this is from the Los Angeles Times. And it's an article that says, Lohan is arrested and suspected DUI crash. It talks about, again, the Mercedes crash in Beverly Hills. It says she was slightly injured after she lost control of her car traveling west on Sunset Boulevard at about 5.30 in the morning. The car ended up striking a curb and a shrubbery along Foothill Road. Two other people in the Mercedes, I guess she was driving their other passengers, they were not hurt. And then officers... Uh, responded to the 911 call. I think she fled the scene and they tracked her down and arrested her at the hospital because I think... (laughs) That is so funny. I think she was taken... It says she left the scene of the crash and was taken by an unidentified associate to the hospital. So I think law enforcement made contact with her at the hospital, which is sometimes, you know... (laughs) She fled. (laughs) Well, I don't know like who took her to the hospital, but she was taken to the hospital. And then law enforcement made contact with the driver at the hospital. But, you know, I would be so curious with this case, too, because it's like, obviously, law enforcement go to the scene. What was said by the two passengers? And- <laughs> Lindsay went that way. <laughs> like, I don't fucking... That's so funny. <laughs> you know what I mean? From her defense perspective, you're having to figure out, like, okay, how do they identify her as the driver? It's probably exactly. based on information that was given... <laughs> from Katie Harris on the move. That's so funny, Christy. She's moving. Law clerk. She's bucking it. And the so mean she, girl. she leaves. That and also, girl. like, who took her to the hospital? Like, I want to know. But so they make contact with her at the hospital. And of course, like, we don't know a lot, a lot of information about, I'm sure a lot of this was probably kept pretty hush yeah Lindsay's people did not want this shit to get out (laughs) um and it's not like a lot of people I mean think about our clients like a typical DUI it's not like the press knows a lot of facts that are specific to the contact that was made even if a crash was involved so like I've had you know I know of DUI cases where a crash was involved and it's not like a lot of information was given to the press in terms of like what went on with the accident so I wonder if her blood was taken or if she did the the breathalyzer down at the station. Oh, I'm going to bet that she probably had. I Well, here's the other thing. She they had blood, to have gotten a warrant for blood for sure. They had to have. And I'm sure that they, that they are, were already like, you know, I mean, we have cases. I've seen cases where clients of ours, you know, there's an accident. A citizen called 911. Um, maybe law enforcement makes initial contact, but then an ambulance arrives and the ambulance takes them to the hospital and then law enforcement Mm -hmm. circles back at the hospital and then does a blood draw there or gets the blood alcohol concentration from the hospital. So I'm sure, I mean, I don't want to speculate too much because of course I don't know, but I'm assuming they obtained her BAC one way or the other. But can you imagine if she's doing like a breathalyzer in the hospital, just like, Poor girl. Um, so yeah, so she, we don't know all the facts about her, her arrest and investigation in terms of knowing that she was actually under the influence. Well, I mean, that's fair. That's a good jumping off point. So typically after I analyze why the person was stopped, for example, if they were stopped for like a traffic infraction, for example, 
I would then analyze whether or not the cop had reasonable suspicion to expand the scope of his investigation to include a DUI, right? right. Because like right. they're not able to expand the duration or scope of their investigation or the stop without reasonable suspicion, right? And if it's just a traffic infraction, like homeboy is supposed to just like get that business done and get you on your way. And if they want to like try to get you for a DUI, they need to have that reasonable suspicion. Oh, I was going to say, I filed a really interesting motion to suppress where a couple of weeks ago where I like laid that argument out where it's like, okay, you pull this person over for a traffic infraction and then you talk about, okay, at the point you made contact, there was no reasonable suspicion to believe that this person was under the influence of alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then there has to be indicators for that. So, and I right. don't want to, maybe that's where you're let's going. Talk about, so. No, let's talk about some of those, right? So what have you seen? I think in our county, police always say, especially like in their report where we're testifying, they'll talk about glassy or bloodshot eyes. They'll talk about mm-hmm. the odor of alcohol. percent. Um, they'll talk about if there is, oh, Clark just put in the chat that there was a breathalyzer done at the jail. That would be so fascinating to see. I I don't know <laughs> if I've ever seen camera footage of a client doing the breathalyzer at the jail. Really? And it says in the article, We're gonna have to yeah, d- I don't think I've seen it yet. This, this it's on different. WIS News, and it says that she blew, uh, blew a one a 0.12, which is, of course, over okay. the legal limit, right? It's not terrible, it, but, she, it it's is, always, but it's not like disgustingly over the legal mi- limit, you know? Yeah, and the legal limit is 0.08. Yeah. But so it's not. It's not terrible. So she, so she did have cocaine in her pocket, right? I believe she had cocaine. Yeah, a little yes. cross faded. Okay. Well, well, we don't know if she cocaine was, cocaine she, we she was out. using alcohol. We no? Wait, just because there was cocaine on her, it doesn't mean that she had used cocaine, Kayla, as any good Were criminal those even her pants? would know. You're right. You're right. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> so her freaking friend's pants. Three sizes okay. in, and we're speculating pants. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so yes, so she had cocaine possession, which she was charged for. So, but back to the to the indicators of alcohol. You know, sometimes it's common they'll they'll say you know flag reasonable suspicion if there's like empty bottles in the car, mm-hmm. and then there's things that they sometimes cite, which you get to argue are not indicators. Like speeding is not an indicator for being under the influence of alcohol. They'll say swerving, but like. You it know, needs to be like prolonged. Right. Or delayed, right. like signaling or something like that. Those are things that they usually hinge on. Do you have any other of the big ones? I think in my in my like practice, odor of alcohol and something to do with the eyes is usually the two biggest. For sure. Oh, Let's Clark says here. following too close. And following too close. That's Christy. Oh, Christy. Why did I say Clark? Christy says following too close. Following too close is interesting because I don't want to like speculate on that because following following too close is it's a de- they, they're going to make the argument that it's delayed reaction right and so I would love to fight that but because some people just follow too close anyways right it depends on if, you know if you're following too close while driving are you speeding if you're following too close while like maybe like at an intersection is that different you're like having a delayed breaking reaction i think those might be two different things kayla you probably know more about this but there's different indicators for alcohol impairment and drug impairment Mm -hmm. for drug impairment it seems like maybe some of the delayed reaction in terms of like 
breaking and stuff like that seems to be most of the the cases that I see where they're arguing like an indicator or maybe a cause of an accident being like breaking or not breaking in time points. My understanding is more to drug impairment, but I, I don't want to be, I'm definitely not the expert in that. So what's your take on following too closely or like delayed breaking? So I would love to talk about this in conjunction with drug DUIs, but let's just, if we may back up one step here. So we talked about like how we typically look at our DUIs and work the cases, right? Did they have a legit reason to stop? Did they have a legit, uh, did they have reasonable, reasonable suspicion to expand the scope of the stop? Reasonable, articulable suspicion. Thank you. Yes. And then we would want to determine if they had like probable cause to like actually arrest them for the DUI, right? Like alcohol right. or otherwise. So typically when police are articulating probable cause for arresting somebody for a DUI, they need to show two things. Number one, some kind of evidence of consumption, right, of drugs or alcohol. And two, some kind of like impairment, like diminished capacities. Exactly. Like impairment, like like erratic driving, for example, or failed field sobriety tests. Or wide turns or whatever it may be. Totally. So let's talk about like field sobriety tests. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right? Like <laughs> I need to have a lot to say. Field sobriety tests. And I think, I don't know if you know this, but I I went to this training in the fall that we had, it was interesting. So we had a training in for criminal defense attorneys in Idaho and they had like a bald one in the town that I live in. And two people from my office did a whole entire presentation on DUI investigations. And field sobriety tests are extremely controversial because I think at first there were over 16 tests that they would administer to somebody that had a DUI. And then there was this big report that was done. And then I think it brought it down to like six. And then it eventually got dwindled down to the three that we know. So it was fun for a while because criminal defense attorneys kind of got to like attack some of the like pseudoscience behind some of the other SFT, SFSTs, which would be things like, you know, tracing a pencil or stuff like that. Those are not used in the same way anymore. Um, and now we've landed on horizontal gaze nystagmus, the one leg stand and the walk and turn. And then those work essentially, and this is probably where you're going to go, you get indicators and kind of like scored on each of those tests. Basically, the bigger picture is like they score you on those tests. If you're deemed to have failed the SFST, then they will administer a breathalyzer test. Usually there has to be like a 15 minute wait period. Then they breathalyze you, you can't burp or anything, and then it goes on. So we can go back to the SF SFSTs. There's the three we've landed on, just a little bit of historical context. It was kind of crazy that they were allowed to just do all of these other additional testing on people. So DUI investigations used to be even more drawn out than they are. Like if people now get pulled over for a DUI, they can be on the side of the road going through a series of tests with a field, with an officer for a while. And I don't know how it works in your county, Kayla, but I think in my experience, they do, at least the ones I've watched, they do the HDN first. Then I think the walk and turn and the one leg stand, but I might have those two mixed up. 
And the and the HGN is really the most important one. So it makes, in my opinion, um, and so it makes sense for them to start with that. I think that the state and the police would kind of be not doing the, <laughs> the investigation. They're aiding themselves by starting with that, in my opinion. So HGN stands for horizontal gaze nystagmus. And essentially what that is, is the officer is checking your eyes for essentially an involuntary flicker or twitch that supposedly happens in your eyes when you have consumed alcohol. So this one's kind of interesting. There are multiple indicators like they will look at horizontal nystagmus. So they will have you follow a stimuli left to right. And they'll also look for vertical gaze nystagmus, which is looking up and down, thinking, um, kind of circling back to something I mentioned earlier, where I kind of enjoy like trying to see if they like checked all of these little boxes. Field sobriety tests are particularly fun for me because there are so many rules and steps that they have to take in order for the field sobriety tests to be considered reliable, right? In order to establish probable cause. For the horizontal vertical gaze nystagmus test, for example, one of the indicators is that there was uh, nystagmus, so that involuntary twitching at quote-unquote maximum deviation. And that's where they're holding the stimuli at the furthest to the side that they can, right? Where your eyes can follow it. And one of the things that I recently learned is that they have to hold it there for a full four seconds in order for them to say that it was distinct and sustained. So that's a you know fun thing when you, you're watching the body cam footage to like make sure they did that for this test to be legit. Can we talk more about HGN real quickly? Oh yeah, please. Backing up in terms of why I said that I think it's in law enforcement's best interest to start with the HGN is because HGN is deemed as like the most accurate of the SFSTs. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a reported percentage of being 77% accurate. So oftentimes you'll hear like the eyes don't lie. As you said, Kayla, nystagmus is an involuntary jerking of the eyes. Um, and so it causes the eyes to gaze to the side. This is not something that can be felt by the person who's having it or controlled. Like it's not something you can manipulate with your eyes yourself. It's caused by CNS, so central nervous system depressants like alcohol, inhalants, or dissociative anesthetics. There's six possible clues or points. So when I say indicators, that's what I mean. What I mean. And so the they kind of break into three categories, which is like the lack of smooth pursuit of your eyes, the distinct and sustained nystagmus at maximum deviation and the angle of onset prior to 45 degrees. Four or more clues, so like I said, there's six possible clues in the test. Four or more clues is indicative of impairment. And it's funny because they say that SFSTs are a tool to assist you in seeing visible signs of impairment, but they're not a pass-fail. Obviously, we know that they kind of end up being that way at the end, but they're really not supposed to be. These tests are voluntary. You don't have to do these tests. And the cop has to tell you that they're voluntary tests. I mean, whether or not you participate in these is up to you. HGN can be caused by, there's over 40 different causes of HGN. They're not just caused by a substance. People can have them from a disruption of things like air fluids. So like a biological reason to have one. People can have them from some sort of like pathological um, diagnosis that they might have. 
They can also have something from just having like an optimal, like an, I'm going to botch this, but it's like an optokinetic response that they have something wrong with their eyes that causes this phenomenon known as astigmatism. So it's not just related to being under the influence of a substance, but surely, you know, law enforcement uses it as an indicator to point to it. Then, you know, as we know, as defense attorneys, if, you you know, when you, maybe you get a case where your client had an astigmatism in their case, then these are things you need to address with them being like, hey, you had indicators. Do you have any of these other conditions? Maybe administer this test on them when they're sober and see if they have the same phenomenon just normally, if they have like an ophthalmologist issue, if they have any ear issues previously. There's little things that you constantly want to be looking at with your clients. And maybe they have some sort of like eye twitching that you notice just in interacting with them. And then that kind of strengthens your case for challenging the HDN result that they had in their SFST. Thank you for bringing up that there could be biological reasons behind that phenomenon. That reminds me that I recently learned as well that the police strobe lights on their car can actually induce that phenomenon as well. So if they don't turn those off and they're like administering it and those are in the background. Because your eyes responding to stimuli in the background like that. And, and, you know, it's funny, too, because they're constantly like looking at people's eyes in SFSTs, not just HGN, but they're looking at like pupil dilation and stuff, whether or not they should. It's not like standard to this part of the test, but they'll they'll look at people's eyes and it's like, okay, are you shining a bright light in their face and it's nighttime? Maybe it's daytime and it's snowing. And so it's really bright outside and white. Mm -hmm. And so people's eyes aren't, you know, uh, dilating the way that they should be. And so these are just little things that are just really interesting in a police report or when you're watching these tests be administered. Let's talk about the walk and turn and the one leg stand. I think these can kind of be grouped together. I hate them. (laughs) Why? I think they're dumb. I think a lot of people... Well, they are for sure dumb. I think my frustration with the walk and turn specifically is that sometimes I don't think law enforcement gives clear instructions as to what people are supposed to do with the walk and turn. Well, that's a basis to challenge it. Well, I know, but it's dumb. And then they just like hang it on the fact that people don't, you know, didn't turn properly or didn't know. And then sometimes like, you know, clients will be like walking and then they'll ask like what they're supposed to do. And then the officers will say, I already told you, I don't get to give you these instructions again or stuff like that. And I think that that's really unfortunate and dumb. And then the one leg stand, there's all sorts of reasons why people could have poor balance aside from being intoxicated. You know, I played college soccer forever. I have terrible knees. If you were to ask me to stand on one leg after a long time, I'm not sure, depending on how my legs were doing on that day, how well I would do with that. Think about some, you know, potential defendants who maybe have had like a hip replacement or a knee replacement, or maybe the road conditions that they're standing on, or maybe they have arthritis or... Totally. And that's just if a person's totally able-bodied, right? So, um, and yeah, people might have other medical conditions, like, you know, maybe stuff going on with balance issues, something related to their head, all sorts of stuff could cause these phenomenons of people not being able to stand for long portions of time. And so I just think that it's a really ableist test and it bothers me because then you have to like to challenge it sometimes. You have to point out these other things that sometimes might be sensitive that people have going on with them as to why 
they're struggling to stand. And like, it's already such an exploitive thing and a vulnerable thing to like share your story. And the system is set up for people to have to like do this dance of being honest with the court, but also not, you know, potentially exposing themselves to like further incriminating statements or anything like that. So it's just hard. Oh yeah, and slurred speech, Clark, to your point, you know, there's other things. Maybe somebody, their the original indicator of slurred speech, maybe somebody has some reason for speaking differently than what the officer is used to and, and that can be used against them. So yeah, just really ableist tests, but I'll get off my soapbox now, Kayla. You can go back onto what you were talking about. I just, I get so heated with DUIs because there's just, it's a rabbit hole which was what we wanted to do on this podcast and we're doing it, you know, diving into it. But there's just all these things that are so incredibly frustrating about every little turn and how these cases can go. And the deck is stacked against your clients. Yes, they have fun things to challenge, but there's a million little things that can just get tossed at them. And it's... I agree. Frustrating. I, I feel you. Yeah. I I certainly share your frustration. I mean, technically in order for the tests to be valid, the cops do have to give the correct instructions. And they are supposed to inquire specifically regarding whether the person has any physical impairments that could impact their ability to perform the tests. But who's going to tell a cop that? Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I, that is honestly like not something I had really considered, but you're right. Like that is a vulnerable thing. And um, people are already like uncomfortable talking to the police, but um, hopefully they're comfortable enough talking to you as their attorney so that you can communicate to that to the prosecutor and tell him why the test is not legit and why your client may have failed, failed um, you know, even if they weren't intoxicated. So the walk and turn has 68% accuracy, according to the research, the initial research that it's by the NHTSA, which I should know that acronym, but I don't. So I'm just going to give you that National acronym. Highway Safety? Traffic Safety Association or something? Yes, probably. So. It, it, like I said to my point, it's it's really testing two things. It's testing kind of this like psychological aspect of it. So it's testing your ability like your to listen. Yeah, listen, mm-hmm. pay attention, remember things and, and pay attention to two different things to like divide your attention. And that presents other challenges too, because like neurodivergent people exist. So like maybe somebody has some attention issues. I I would probably struggle with that um, as somebody who has ADHD and you're overwhelmed by this experience and there's a lot of stimulus going on and it's just a lot. And so, um, and I think when you're kind of stressed out, your ability to focus on something is diminished. A hundred percent. And then the second part of the test is like assessing the physical performance. So the walk and turns really two tests in one. Um, which a lot of people think it's just like, oh, you're just testing somebody's ability to walk. No, it's like there, there's a sneaky other test in there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Good point. We should talk about the test, the scores for the walk and turn. So there's okay eight possible clues on the walk and turn. So the first is you can't keep balance during the instructional phase. Second would be starting too soon. And then it goes from there. Stops while walking, does not touch heel to toe on a step steps off the line, uses your arms for balance, an improper turn, or an incorrect number of steps. So there's a lot going on. Like there's a lot of different instruction in terms of, I guess, the footwork required for these things to do, the amount of steps you're supposed to take, listening, balancing, turning properly. You know, maybe you, if you kind of wobble and use your arms, I guess that would be a clue. So um, 
And each clue can only be counted once. So like if you've wobbled or used arm once, you only pick up a clue for that once. It's not like you get double counted. So there's eight, there's eight possible clues. Um, and then uh, two or more clues on this test is indicative of impairment, which is crazy because it's like if you... Yeah, two or more clues on this test is indicative of impairment. So mm-hmm. if you get a six out of eight, you still technically failed. Hate that. <laughs> Even though they say it's not like based on a fail, doesn't sit quite right. Yikes. Well, um, then we've got the one like stance. There's only a few indicators for that one, right? What's like hopping? It has four possible clues. The one like stand, um, it... First of all, so they say the same research says that the one leg stand is the least accurate. It's at 65% accurate. Again, it's kind of the two in one. It's a psycho, it's a psychophysical test. Um, it has four possible clues. So swaying, swaying while performing the test. Again, using your arms to balance, um, hopping, as you said, and then putting your foot down on the ground. And this one's even more interesting. Um, two or more clues is indicative of impairment. So you only have four things you could clue for. And again, only each clue can only be scored once. And so the one leg stand as a test, it lasts for only 30 seconds. But it's it's funny because the N the N wow, the NHSTA say that wind, weather, age, weight, and footwear can impact performance on this test. Yes. Dude, I just recently learned that um if you're over it, so the test is not... So this goes both for the walk and turn and the one leg stand. Not validated if you're over 50 pounds overweight or if you're wearing heels over two inches high. I see that. That is really, really interesting. And and keep in mind too that keeping foot parallel to the ground, looking at foot and keeping legs up, legs straight are not clues. And I think sometimes I've hear, I've heard, I haven't seen it, but sometimes I've heard that some... Officers can get upset if per- a person keeps their legs straight, that they get upset about that. But according to the NHST, it's not a clue to do so. And then it says there's some additional interesting research. It says that persons with a BAC over 0.1 can seldom maintain balance for 30 seconds. So one leg stand, walk and turn. I don't know what to say about them other than I'm not a fan. I think HDNs are really fun because you get to see if they administer the test properly. The way I look at these tests is like the HDN, I want to know if the officer administered the test properly and challenge it based on maybe improper administration of the test. It seems like that's probably the best way to challenge it. Or, you know, maybe your client has some other reason for having nystagmus. The other two, it's fun because you kind of get to challenge based on maybe how they perform or how well they did on the test otherwise. I've had cops mess up too on the instructions for sure. Really? Yeah, dude. That's so interesting. I mean, you just got to you just got to watch it carefully, especially like with their body cams. That is like the real game changer because in the report, it might say that they did X, Y and Z. But if you actually like watch the body cam, you'll notice, oh, she didn't actually tell her that she needed to take a series of small steps on the turn and then noted an incorrect turn as an indicator when homegirl didn't even tell her how to turn. You know what I mean? Right. And then it, the, then I, after the conclusion of those three tests, my understanding is that a really important point in the DUI investigation happens because it's like after the conclusion of those three tests, 
Is, are those all the only tests you have? You don't have the portable breath test? We do, but I want to get there in a second. My understanding is that after conducting the three tests, the officer must decide whether or not to arrest the client if they have probable cause to believe that they're impaired at that point. We have the portable breath test as a field sobriety test. We do too. Like I know that that usually happens afterwards. So we have people... So I don't know how it works in Washington, but my understanding is at that point, you need to make a determination of whether or not you believe the person's impaired. Then you have to go into this breath test and there's like kind of a waiting period of like 15 minutes. It's interesting because I think sometimes depending on the officer, they start the clock for the 15 minute waiting period at different points. Some officers wait until the SFSTs are done and some officers, you know, start at a different point. Are you talking about a breathalyzer machine like a Drager down at the station or are you talking about just a a portable portable breath breath test? test. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's weird. And they, okay, interesting. And so you're saying like they will say they have probable cause to arrest before administering the portable breath test? My understanding is that the officer, in order to establish probable cause to continue the investigation, that's kind of a, the officer needs probable cause to believe a DUI was committed. So, um, and I think that, you know, if they flunk those, then you go to the breathalyzer. I don't know how somebody could feasibly pass that. And then the officer is being like, I'm still going to breathalyze you. And maybe that's like my poor understanding of the law. And maybe I need to flush that part of the understanding out. But every single thing I've seen where somebody has had a breathalyzer administered to them, they have developed, they have scored as such on these tests, but then the breathalyzer is the next step. And there has to be a waiting period before they can administer the breathalyzer. Yeah, I would say in my experience, it's just, it's just like the fourth, the fourth test. They got to get a blank reading on it first. Do you have a waiting period? You know, good question. It maybe, it might be. I mean, I I don't recall. I feel like in order to be compliant with the WAC, the Washington Administrative Code, it needs to be voluntary and they need to have obtained a blank test before. I actually don't think that there is a waiting period. Now, we have the Drager machine down at the station, which is a different thing. And that happens after the person has been arrested where they either do the breath test or they, you know, try to get a warrant for their blood. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess let's just, let's jump there, right? So the person is arrested and let's just back up actually for a second, because like, just generally speaking, the way that I kind of explain DUIs to my clients, just like simply, is there are two ways for them to get you on a DUI. Number one is for you to be over the per se limit for alcohol or marijuana, 0.08 BAC for alcohol over five nanograms per milliliter or higher of THC in your blood or cannabis. And then the other way is even if they can't prove that you are above the legal limit, they can still get you for a DUI if they can show that you were affected by your consumption of drugs or alcohol. And so again, right, ways they can show you were affected by shitty driving, right, failed field sobriety tests. And so, okay, so let's say you failed the field sobriety test you know, maybe you wrongly decided to do those. Maybe you made some admissions to drinking, which you should never do. And you were arrested and you're taken to the station. Something that's interesting, at least in the cases that I've seen, it's so uh, back to the, the thing that grinds my gears. So in the cases that I see, 
they've done these SFSUs, then they have this like waiting period, which is why I'm asking, because this is something that's so interesting. They'll have this waiting period where they say that you can't belt, belch, burp, or vomit. Because then if you do and you have consumed alcohol, that can bring remnants of alcohol to your mouth, which then could affect your performance on a breathalyzer test. So they say, we have to observe you for 15 minutes and the officer must not lose observation of that person's mouth, essentially in that period of time before administering the breathalyzer test. And then, as you said, they have to do the um, test on the machine to make sure that it's configured correctly. And then they administer the test. Usually, in most cases, I believe here, people get, they do two blows. A lot of reports will have like, you know, say a person in blue, like a 0.082 and then like maybe like a 0.086 or whatever. And so a lot of police reports will have like the two different results that they had on both t- on the two blows. Um, and then, you know, they get arrested, taken to the station, whatever. But what's interesting in Idaho and something that I just, Man, I would love to have another just like take on this by just a, some another Idaho defense attorney that is not in my community up here. But it's like, it's so interesting because in those 15 minutes, say the police, the way I understand it, and the reason why it's so interesting to me is at that point, the officer must determine whether or not they are going to arrest. And then they're like pursuing with a breathalyzer. And so what I'm curious is like when the determination of arrest has to be made, because if they're determining that the person's arrested and then they're pursuing with this 15 minute period, are they not in custody? And then if they continue asking questions, that's a whole other mess, right? And sometimes they're in cuffs in those 15 minutes. Sometimes they're not. Um, although handcuffs, as you know, Kayla, are only one of the indicators as to somebody being in custody not like, oh, you have handcuffs on you, you're for sure in custody, or you don't have handcuffs on you, you're for sure not in custody. Um, but it's just interesting. And then sometimes, and I've seen it, um, officers in those 15-minute periods will then ask if they can search your client's person, your client's car, all of these other things that then maybe the DUI investigation is moving into a direct into the direction of looking for other information or other evidence to support this investigation or maybe something else i don't know and is it being is the stop being extended at that point kind of no cuz you're waiting that 15 minute period and um yeah it's just you're giving me a look like you do not like this or you're confused by it and Girl, me too. I just don't understand <laughs> Idaho. I just don't get it. I mean, for us, portable breath tests aren't admissible in court, right? Like, it's just a field sobriety test. What would be admissible in court are the results from the actual Drager machine down at the station. But that wouldn't happen until after you are arrested. So I don't know. And maybe that's why, too. You know, maybe they, they you know, then test them down at the station. And maybe that's what they would present in court. I have never taken a DUI case to trial. So I don't know how all of that goes. All of the DUI cases I've gotten at different kind of stages and they've ended up resolving. So it's not like we've had to challenge a lot of the results of a breathalyzer test, but it's just odd because they'll usually make them blow on scene and then, you know, they'll arrest them and take them down to the station. And I'm sure they do more testing down there and make them blow down there or sometimes do a blood draw by a DRE or whatever. 
Yeah, it's funny because it's like technically there's the three SFSTs, maybe the portable breathalyzer is a technical fourth, but the video footage that I've seen when they do the field breathalyzer is that there's like a waiting period. Well, then you should make the argument that they're under arrest, right? Well, and and Idaho's weird. Idaho has this really... The line between being detained and being in custody in Idaho is so much more confusing to me than the line of being detained and being in custody was in Oregon. I felt like I had a very strong understanding of custody, Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, Fifth Amendment jurisprudence, living in Oregon, and then to our listeners who are in law school, if you go practice in another state, sometimes this shit gets really confusing and I am swimming in that. I am like, what is going on with search and seizures, DUI investigations? Where's the line of these things? And that's been like kind of the learning curve for me for the past however many months. But I will just candidly say, I've never been more confused as I have been about the lines between just being detained and being in custody than I have been living in this state. Man, it makes me miss Oregon. So (laughs) do it that way, you will. I want to finish up our discussion by just briefly talking about what happens after you're arrested. So you're arrested, you did the breathalyzer or they got your blood. They know if you have drugs or if you um, or if you took drugs or if you had alcohol in your system. And then what happens? Well, then your attorney will try to resolve your case. In Washington, we have mandatory minimums for DUIs. Uh, do they have mandatory minimums in Idaho? Depends on the type of DUI. So like, are you talking about jail time minimums and then like fine minimums and stuff like that? I think that the consecutive jail time um, only applies to, I think, excessive... If I, I'm going to botch this. I think excessive DUIs and felony DUIs are second offense. I think first offense DUIs are kind of this weird outlier that we have here. And then um, it comes with other requirements in terms of the driver's license suspension and stuff like that. In Washington, even for your first time DUI, it's a mandatory minimum of one day in jail, $991 fine. They'll make you do a chemical dependency evaluation, comply with any recommended treatment. You'd be on probation. You'd have to have an ignition interlock device installed on your vehicle for about a year. Your license is going to be suspended for 90 days. If you blew over a 0.15, and um, just a reminder, the above the legal limit is a, a 0.08, then there are harsher penalties. So um, even if it's your first time, if you blew over the 0.15, it would be two days of jail, um, a higher fine, I want to say like around $1,200. Um, your license is suspended for longer, et cetera. If, God forbid, you pick up another DUI in the next seven years, you're looking at like 30 days in jail. It, get, it gets pretty hardcore pretty quickly. Because then you get into like felony territory. In, in Idaho, you get into like felony ter- territory, second offense territory. And it's the same thing. And 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 for like the one day in jail for like a first offense DUI, that's like you get booked in jail. You get arrested. You get booked in jail. If you bond out that same night or maybe the next morning, that counts as a single day in jail. Like that counts as a credit uh, Not for, one for day. us. It has to be 24 what? hours. Yeah. Your credit for time in all of your cases is a full 24 hours? No, dude. But just oh. for the mandatory minimums for the DUIs. Typically, there's good time. So just like a third of your sentence gets shaved off. But when you're dealing with the DUI man-mans, it has to be a consecutive 24 hours for you to get credit. I don't think that's the thing in Idaho. I think most people like can bond out the next morning for a DUI. 
Well, I mean, not that you can't bond out. It's just that when you resolve the case, if you want to have had your credit applied, you're only... You have to go serve. Right. If you didn't serve a consecutive 24 hours. I don't think I don't So it's like, that. it might be in your en- interest to just like not bail out. I mean, I guess it just depends, <laughs> oh right? Okay. I don't... Well, I mean, for a day, like if it's going to be 24 hours, right? If you're like almost there. I don't think Idaho has that. And like now I'm feeling like I'm committing malpractice because I'm like, do all of my no, clients dude, have to fine. serve 24 hours? Because what? Typically, I'll try to um, resolve the case with like an amended charge if we can't get it dismissed. So like kind of going down the line, like I I think of DUIs as the most severe. And then I think about reckless driving, which here is still a gross misdemeanor, meaning the maximum penalty is up to 364 days in jail and or a $5,000 fine. What? That's a that's a gross misdemeanor. A DUI is a gross misdemeanor. A reckless driving is also a gross misdemeanor. But with reckless driving, you don't have any of the mandatory minimums and it's only 30 days of license suspension going down the line. Then you have like negligent driving first degree, which is just a misdemeanor. So 90 days and a $1,000 fine, no mandatory minimums, no license suspension. So it's just like trying to negotiate, you know, down the line. Yeah. I mean, reckless is definitely higher than like inattentive or anything like like that here. But it seems like Washington's pretty heavy on DUI charging. I am not. And like other driving offenses. Yeah. They do not mess around. Don't drunk, don't drink and drive or do drugs and drive in Washington. <laughs> right. Don't do it, apparently. Well, what, happens, what happened to our girl, Lindsay? Did she plead oh. to a DUI or was it amended to a lesser charge? So Lindsay had a little bit of a rough go. I'm not going to lie. She pled guilty to misdemeanor cocaine use and DUI. And she was sentenced to one day in jail and 10 days of community service. And then um, she was placed on three years probation, which I don't... That's kind of uncommon in Idaho. A long time. Right. So um, she got three years probation. And then after that, here's kind of what I was saying about her release and then kind of her case playing out the way that is typical for some DUI cases. So she pled and then she spent a whopping 84 minutes in the Linwood, California jail before being released due to overcrowding. She then there was a warrant that was issued to her arrest um, that was that was a warrant was ordered in 2009. So two years after um, the DUI was resolved and the judge issued a $50,000 warrant related to the DUI. And then it was rescinded three days later after her attorney showed that she'd been cl- complying with the terms of her probation. Then there was something procedurally odd. The ju- Later that same year, the judge in her DUI case extended her probation for an additional, additional 12 months so that she could complete her court-ordered alcohol education program, which, as you said, common in cases in Washington, extremely common in cases in Idaho. Usually you have to do like victim's impact panel and um, Mm -hmm. uh, ADIS. And then the following year, her probation was revoked and a bench warrant was issued um, after she skipped a court date, so she failed to appear. God, Lindsay's so messy. Yeah, and she went to the Keynes Film Festival instead. And then she said oh she couldn't God. get yeah, she couldn't get back because her passport was stolen. So the judge set her bail at a hundred thousand dollars, which she then paid um, <laughs> to get to get released. Um, and then um, she this was the fun the one that was the most interesting. So at some point she gets an uh, an ankle monitor put on her um, in 2010. She had her bail. The judge found her in violation of probation again in 2010. 
And her bail was set at $200,000 and a new bench warrant was issued because her ankle break, her ankle monitor um, pinned her for being at a party related to the MTV Movie Awards. Um, she was that the warrant was then subsequently recalled after a bail bondsman covered her bond. Later that same year, she was sentenced to 90 days in jail for failing to appear in court again, or oh no, not appear in court, for failing to attend her court-ordered weekly alcohol education courses. Wow. Miss Lohan then eventually surrendered in 2010 and ended um, up serving two weeks. Again, she didn't have to serve longer because of prison overcrowding and the nonviolent nature of her crime, which is interesting. I think sometimes judges and prosecutors will say that DUIs are they'll try to make the argument for it being violent because you're putting people in danger or, you know, be harmful to people's well-beings or people's well-being. Later in 2010, her probation was revoked after she failed a drug test and they found cocaine in her system. She then got released from jail and went to rehab. Yeah, she had this... I've been... I know where this is. So she went to rehab. She went to Betty Ford, which is a pretty um, big rehabilitation center in um, like the Palm Springs area. And she had... I think some sort of altercation with a staff member there. I think charges were related to that. Those charges were later what? dropped. Yes. And then like she assaulted there, a staff member at rehab. I think so. And then allegedly. And then allegedly. in 2011, she was taken back into custody after pleading not guilty to um, a necklace theft. It just kind of goes on and on and on. Oh, um, and so it, it Basically, her probation in the DUI case, she completed officially in 2012, which is a long time after the case originally God, started damn. in 20, 2007, I believe. So, Dude. Um, yeah. God. Um, yeah. And so, and so she had to serve, I think she got ordered, like, as all of that was playing out, I think there was another court determination that she was needed to do, like, 120 days in jail and 480 hours of community service. Um, and then like the necklace thing turned into a misdemeanor and there was another bail. Flip. <laughs> and so, yeah, there was just, and there was like another case that involved like sideswiping a person with her car and just a lot happened. What? And so the point I wanted to make with her case <laughs> and to just kind of humanize it, I mean, it's, it's, a little bit bananas this case got dragged out as long as it did and like so much attention was on it and she's just you know been painted in this light i just the point that's so interesting about her case i mean first and foremost i think it's really important to point out that like duis are extremely common oh yeah any type of like driving and influence cases is common duis dwis Public intoxication charges, you know, alcohol and drug cases are are really, really common. I mean, George W. Bush had an old DUI. Dick Cheney had an old, old DUI or something related to that. For sure. The one thing that unites the rich and poor 100% is DUIs. And I saw this list and it had like two judges who've had DUIs from like mm-hmm. other states and stuff too. So, you know, it's a wide swath in terms of the typical defendant in a DUI case. It could be anybody. The thing that's so interesting about Lindsay Lohan's case is that I think it's a really honest picture of just like how complicated they can be, not just DUIs, but especially DUIs to just get it done. Yeah. You know, probation's not easy. People are like, oh, you're not in jail. You just have to comply with probation. Probation's not that easy, especially if you're on supervised probation or, you know, wearing an ankle monitor or ordered to do a ridiculous amount of community service or, you know, in Idaho, 
people being ordered to do sheriff's labor program or whatever it may be. Then you have these other requirements of completing treatment, getting a substance abuse evaluation done. Like then if you don't do those things by the timeline, then you get a probation violation and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And that all takes time and money. And what do so many clients not have? Time and like, money. Time or money. They're fucking right. working, but barely getting by or like trying to just, yeah, it's it's brutal, dude. And it's just hard because I find myself in court constantly, you know, say they had a DUI or whatever other case, but for this purpose, a DUI, then they get a probation violation and we're back in court for the probation violation. And the probation violation is because they didn't do one of these things, or maybe they picked up additional charges, but then flagged a probation violation, whatever it may be. And your clients are explaining to you just their life. And there's all sorts of reasons that make these hurdles that they have to jump through hard. And who is on top of their stuff enough to like keep track of I have to get this submitted to the court by this time. Hopefully your attorney is taking care of that and tracking that for you. But, you know, stuff goes through the cracks all the time with people's lives or just caseloads, whatever it may be. So hope that's going on. Then people, if they have like high levels of, you know, treatment that they're required to do, say they're like in intensive outpatient treatment or partial hospitalization. And maybe I should kind of lay some foundation for that. Oftentimes, if people have like an alcohol or a drug charge, um, they have to get a substance abuse valuation done. And those are incredibly invasive usually as well because they go into things about a person's history, um, tolerance, diagnoses they may have, all of these things that are considered predisposers for um, substance abuse of any kind. So then they go and they get this evaluation done and they're also in this point again of having to be like honest and forthright or whatever. And then from that comes the recommended level of treatment. And then in Idaho, it's like the condition when you go to sentencing is get the evaluation done and complete the recommended level of treatment. So at that point, sometimes people don't really know what they're... Hopefully you get your substance abuse evaluation done before you go to sentencing. So you know what your client is committing to. That should be best practice because your substance abuse evaluation will tell you what level of treatment the client is needing so that a client is not just going to be blindsided and say, I didn't know that this is what I was needing to do and go over that with them, right? But say they have this really high level of recommended treatment, they're um, then signing up for all of these things. They they are incredibly time-consuming. Factor in trying to have a job to pay for things like housing or just basic needs. And maybe they have a family, all of these things, or maybe they picked up a charge in a state they don't live in. So they're having to go out of their way to go to court someplace else. And it's just a lot. Lindsay Lohan's case is really not that different than a normal non-celebrity person, because yes, there were some outliers in terms of her not having to spend a lot of time in jail and yes, like all of these other things. But like, come on, like how many cases just get drug out because life happens to people who happen to have a case that they're working on throughout the court. And then it just turns into this snowball. And I and I think that it's just it's easy to laugh at because it's kind of it seems kind of ridiculous, but it's also just the reality of she's not that different than anybody I would meet in court on any given day. And so that's why I wanted to talk about her case because it seems ridiculous. And sometimes the best learning is through something that's a little bit comical 
But then just to bring it back down, it's pretty normal. So that's my thought. And um, and for that, I love Lindsay Lohan. And I think that she's a person who had a run of it and uh, who hasn't. On that note, I hope that everybody will join us for our next episode. Thanks so much. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.